It's approximately 56 A.D., the Apostle Paul being found in the city of Ephesus, and the Christians of Corinth have written him a letter. You know, we often think of the apostles writing to the churches, but we don't really stop to consider that the churches would also write to the apostles. I mean, there they were. They had questions. They had concerns. You know, they couldn't really consult their Bibles. Bibles didn't exist. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't really, you know, uh, go to the New Testament. It, it wasn't really circulating. So what then do you do? Well, you write a letter and you wait for a response. And what we have before us here in 1 Corinthians is the response of Paul the Apostle to the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. Now up to this point in the first six chapters, the things that Paul has addressed didn't really have anything to do with what they wrote to him, uh, but what he had come to learn about them. Uh, but here in chapter 7, he begins to bring clarity in some of these, their areas of confusion. Now, let's not forget we're coming out of a context where Paul was speaking on the sin of sexual immorality, which simply means sex outside of marriage, and how the body is not really, had not really been created for sexual gratification, but rather for the Lord's glorification. But now he turns the page, and in answering their questions, he moves from the dangers of sex outside of marriage, really, honestly, guys, to the duty of sexual relations within the marriage. Now, I also want to say this from the very onset, that a marriage relationship is one of faithfulness. You know, we don't know that perhaps there was a neglect of the duties found in chapter 7, which played a part in some of the sin discussed in chapter 6. And guys, it's true that if you neglect your spouse sexually, it can create an opportunity for the enemy uh, and the lusts of the flesh to take advantage of their weakness, whereby they fall into sin. But having said that, we can never blame our spouse for our own lack of self-control or unfaithfulness, God forbid. If someone is unfaithful to their spouse, it's not their spouse's fault. They're accountable for their own decisions and the ramifications that ensue. And so I just want to get that out there and be clear with regard to that from the very beginning with regard to a study like this. And so let's turn our attention beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 7 where Paul writes and says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me... It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, many of you, uh, I'm sure, remember the game show Jeopardy. How many of you remember Jeopardy? Yeah, everybody remembers that show where the, the, the answer would be given, but then you would have to present a question that would provide that said answer. That was kind of how you solved the, the, the scenario. And that's kind of what we have right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, it's like Paul gives us the answers, but we don't have the questions that provoke the answers. And so we sort of surmise what the question was. Now, again, let's not forget that we're coming out of a section that has to do with the sin 
of sexual immorality, the fact that God's purpose for the body will continue on into eternity, and that our bodies, having been redeemed by Christ, are to be used to give him glory. Now, you couple that with the fact, and it just continues to come up because it was a reality of the context that Paul was writing into, but you have this city that he's writing to, this church in which the city, the thousand over, it really was over a thousand, but a minimum of a thousand prostitutes that would literally invade Corinth every single night seeking uh, sexual relations like religiously. So he's talking about the use of the body with regard to eternity, that it's be used to give God glory, that these prostitutes are seeking sex religiously and all of this. And so the, there's a lot of confusion uh, in the church of Corinth. And they had questions, obviously, it seems to me, that had to do with marriage, singleness, sexual relations. You know, Paul, how do all these things, what's the balance? How, how do they they work. I mean, you're kind of talking about sex in a sinful way, then should we uh, even have or engage in sexual relations? Should we abstain, you know, even if we're married, if it's that close, if there's, you know, these kinds of things. And Paul reminds them, no, it's, sex is not sinful, okay? It's a gift that God has given us for multiple reasons, not the least of which is to strengthen and unify the marriage bond. It's sexual immorality that is sinful. Sex outside of the context of marriage is sin. Remember, we spoke out of the context, or out of verse 18 of the previous chapter, that when it comes to sexual temptation or any kind of connotation outside of marriage, you're to flee. Uh, but within, if you're married as it pertains to your spouse, no need to flee. Uh, in fact, feel free, right? I mean, we, we want them Pentecostal marriages in the body of Christ. I get to say it again. You know what I'm talking about. All kinds of tongues and lots of laying on of hands, right? I mean, you get to say, how often do you get to throw that in? Like twice in two weeks, you know? But anything outside... The marriage union has a price tag attached to it that, believe you me, you don't want to pay. It will ultimately lead not to your benefit, but to your detriment. We remember the mathematics of sin. It adds sorrow, subtracts joy, multiplies your problems, and divides your heart. And that's why Paul says here, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, of course, that he's not saying that as a man, you shouldn't shake a woman's hand or, uh, you know, uh, give her a hug after an appropriate uh, manner or, or whatever. This word touch, if you just kind of look back through your Old Testament, Genesis chapter 20, Proverbs chapter 6, Ruth chapter 2, it's kind of a biblical euphemism or idiom. It, it, it means to have sexual relations with, Okay. It's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. This was evidently something that Paul had uh, spoken to them about while he was with them. However, again, it seems as though the angle that the Corinthians were coming at it with was along the lines of, well, since sex can be associated with sin, then is it more pure to simply abstain from sex altogether? I mean, even if we're married, you know. And that's what Paul addresses here in verse 2. He says categorically, no, as a married couple, if you are not being together intimately, uh, 
with some form of consistency or regularity, that's the kind of thing that can lead to sexual immorality. Now, when he says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband, he's not commanding people to get married so that they can avoid sexual immorality. Uh, though later on, he will certainly concede to the fact that uh, you know, that is a safeguard to, to the marriage union. It can help deter such a situation. But here, all that he's saying is that if you're married, listen, you should live like a married couple, specifically within the sexual arena. When he says husbands should have their own wives and wives should have their own husbands, guys, he's speaking in a sexual sense. And so, yes, he says, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman, but it's not good, are you with me, uh, to avoid sex with your own wife, okay, or with your own husband. We're tracking, right? So we're seeing the difference. He's dissecting. Yeah, generally speaking, you know, as it pertains to outside the marriage union, it's not a good thing. But within the marriage union, you shouldn't be avoiding this. You should be uh, taking part of this with regularity. Two things quickly here. Uh, number one, embedded within these verses is the fact that God does not approve of polygamy, uh, nor does he acknowledge or approve of a homosexual marriages, okay? He says, he speaks of one man, the husband, and one woman, uh, the wife, and, and that has been God's purpose, God's pattern uh, from the beginning. Uh, number two, we need to realize here as we go through, sorry, uh, my ear's itching. I just, it's driving me crazy. All right? Normally I wouldn't do that, but it's really bothering me. <laughs> sorry. Uh, but we need to realize that Paul is, as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's not seeking to give a complete theology of marriage in this passage, okay? He is answering specific questions with regard to marriage, singleness, sex, you know, in this context. If you want a more complete theology of the marriage union and what it's to look like and how it functions and operates scripturally, you might want to also write down, just throw in the margin outside your Bible, you know, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And you know what? Just for good measure, go ahead and throw in the 13th chapter of this book as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know. But he says in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. 
Now, forgive me, ladies, if it offends you that I feel inclined to run to your defense real quick here. I know you don't need my defense. It's the last thing that you need. But I know that there are times when husbands, primarily, not categorically, but husbands will take scriptures like these. They will use them to manipulate and guilt their wives to kind of get what they want. Uh, But we recognize a balance here. We should see the balance. Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And many a man has taken verses like this or this verse specifically and said, you see, it says so right here in the Bible. And so, you know, you need to, and the idea is, is you need to give me what I want, you see. Uh, But they completely ignore the next verse which says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Guys, there's an equality and a reciprocity in play here. You you understand what I'm saying? The proper perspective in a marriage relationship regarding the sexual aspect is not on my rights, but on my responsibility, okay? And this goes both ways. There's to be a mutual giving and enriching and satisfying of one another. It's not a matter of taking or getting, but of giving. And it's the same principle that Jesus emphasized when he spoke of placing the needs of others before our own. I want you to notice that Paul says in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, And likewise also the wife to her husband. There's three words that I want to highlight. Number one is the word render. Again, uh, we've already kind of mentioned it, so I'll just kind of pass over it here. But the idea is not that of of getting, but of, of giving. Of thinking first of my spouse. Of rendering unto my spouse. Giving unto my spouse. Number two, we note the word affection. It's a word that speaks of kindness, um, of benevolence, and goodwill. Family, marriage, by by the way, a lot of times when I just say guys, now I know in a study like this you may be thinking I'm talking to the men. I'm just using it as a a neutral word. I'm just saying people, okay? Um, But marriage is a place where our word is affection is to abound, Okay, The man isn't to see sex in the marriage union as simply or maybe selfishly a way to have his own needs met. He's to render affection to his wife. He's to think of her needs, which may vary vastly from his own. Okay, And we could elaborate on that, but suffice it to say that it will require, gentlemen, it will require communication and consideration, okay, of her. Placing, listen to me, placing your own needs first in a marriage relationship is a recipe for all kinds of problems, okay? But far from, as he says in in verse 1, where he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, far from that, he says here, within a marriage union, we're to regularly render affection, okay? Now, I should also say that though affection in this context 
may include sex, it's certainly not limited to sex, okay? Kindness, benevolence, goodwill. Again, I repeat, communication, consideration, okay? The final word that I want to isolate here is the word do, D-U-E. Husbands, affection is due. You talk about paying your dues in certain contexts, right? Affection is due or it is owed. Think of it like that. Affection is owed to your wife. Now, here's the important part of this. Don't miss this. Paul the apostle, when he says, render the affection due to your wife or the affection that you owe your wife, he doesn't in any way qualify that. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, he doesn't say, husband, uh, you owe your wife affection uh, if she's a great cook, uh, if, if she is uh, submissive, if she does the laundry, or you know, whatever the case may be, whatever's running around in the back of your mind. By the sheer fact that she's your wife, you owe her affection. It's your, we might say, duty as a Christian husband. Last week we spoke of, of debts. Today it's duty. We owe a debt to the Lord. We have a duty to our spouse. If you want to build a strong foundation for a successful marriage, focus on the needs of your spouse, on giving and not getting. And this goes both ways as well. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. Guys, people, Paul is describing a relationship whereby both people are taking initiative, both desire to bless each other. There are mutual obligations here. Listen, sexual intimacy should never be used as a weapon to fight with, but it should be used as a tool to build with, okay? To refuse one another is to rob one another. It's to invite Satan to tempt your spouse. And I'm encouraging you, don't be ignorant of your enemy's devices, okay? Think of it like this, guys. How many people are on the planet today? I don't even know. Eight billion? Something like that? Right there? I mean, billions and billions of people, right? Let's just go with that. There are billions and billions of people upon the planet, and God has chosen you and you alone to meet the sexual needs of your spouse. Think about that. It's an incredibly important responsibility that God has entrusted to you singularly. That's it. There's no one else that can do that, okay? That's why he says in verse 5, do not deprive, or the word is defraud, one another. Guys, nothing helpful comes from sexual deprivation in marriage. In fact, it can be quite harmful. But I also want to say this to you husbands out there, okay? See, now I'm addressing the guys. The guys. Uh, before you start talking to your wife about how deprived you are, okay? Which, which I pray is, never, is not the case for anyone. I mean, you know what? I mean, I, I pray that every marriage here is flourishing and fruitful in every area, every context. This is just the one that we're talking about today. But to keep the balance, if you're feeling deprived, um, perhaps you should consider the affection that you're rendering to her. Okay? Um, 
Again, maybe it's there, maybe it's there, but look there first. Uh, Too often we want to highlight our spouse's shortcomings when we should really be considering and repenting of our own. Does that make sense? So before we, we highlight how deprived we are, let's look at the affection that we're rendering to our spouse. Now, Paul says you can abstain for a time, again, speaking to married couples, Uh, so long as the consent is mutual and the purpose is spiritual for prayer and fasting. But even in that, guys, Paul says it's a concession, not a commandment. In other words, he's saying there's nothing more holy, there's nothing more pure about abstaining, okay? If you're married, it's not like a little more spiritual if you abstain and and you pray and all this. As a matter of fact, Paul would say, I think it's kind of weird that you're even asking about this. He's got, guys, if you really want, I mean, you know, he's not recommending it at all. It's more like he's saying, look, if you both feel like this is something you want to do, something you maybe need to do, I mean, you can, I guess, but keep the time brief and then return to normal relations lest the enemy tempt one or the other of you because of your lack of self-control, okay? It's a concession. He's like, I guess if you guys are really asking me, really feel impressed to want to do something like this, it's, it's not going to make you more holy. It's not going to be more spiritual, but if you want to, you can, but just keep the time brief. And, and while you are abstaining, make sure that you're focusing on the Lord and seeking Him, okay? Now, I brought this up last week. It's worth repeating. One of Satan's greatest strategies uh, when it comes to sex is to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex within the marriage. He's winning on either side of that, okay? Now, as a married couple you should refuse to accept a poor sexual relationship. There may be things that need addressed. I'm not saying that there never is. I'm not saying uh, that uh, things will be easily overcome or quickly solved if there's things that need to be addressed. But God's heart for you is to enjoy and be strengthened in your marriage bond through a fruitful sexual union with your spouse. He wants that area of your life to be a blessing, not a burden, you see. Now, in verse 7, he says, uh, For I wish that all men uh, were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, uh, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows... It is good for them if they can remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now from this we can deduct, obviously, that when Paul wrote this, he himself was unmarried. And he recognizes the benefit of being single. He says, truth be told, you know, we're talking about all these things. I wish you guys were just like all like me. You know, uh, he's saying time is short. The harvest is ripe. The laborers are few. And the more people who can devote themselves entirely to serving the Lord, sharing the gospel, the better. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, I also want to point out that though Paul was unmarried at this time, uh, we have ample reason to believe that uh, previously, prior to some point to this time, he, he was married. 
And the reason we say that is because one thing we know about the Apostle Paul is that he was an extremely observant Jew, right? We know this. Uh, he was previously a Pharisee, which was an elite class in the Jewish society. They uh, observed all kinds of manners and traditions and minute details of the law uh, religiously. Uh, Paul said in, in uh, I think it's Philippians, how he excelled above all his peers. Uh, and, and, you know, and that all plays in to the fact that in Paul's day, Jews considered a young man to be in sin if they weren't married by the time they were 20 years old. Uh, so much so that they were often considered to be actually excluded from heaven and not a, even a real man if they weren't married by the time they were 20. And they based this rationale upon the fact of the creation account. You know, that after God made everything, he said it was good. But then when he observed man there in chapter 2, we read the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And so they deduced from that that if you're not married, you're not in God's will. It's something that's not good, you see. And so if you're not in God's will, you're in sin. You, you, this is the, the way that the rationale was, was taking place. It was the train of thought. Now you add to that the command of God to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and all. If you're not married, you're not obeying God's word. You see, so they're, they're thinking like this. Now add to that, that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now we deduct that from Acts chapter 26 when he said that when people were being, the Christians were being put to death, that he was casting his vote against them. Well, if you weren't in the Sanhedrin, you didn't get a vote, okay? And uh, it was actually you know, an unmarried man could not be a member of the Sanhedrin. It was just required to be uh, in the Sanhedrin. So the question becomes, what, what happened to his wife? Uh, and the answer is, we don't know, honestly. It would seem that either she died uh, or perhaps she left him when he gave his life to Christ and lost all that prominence and power and prestige within the Jewish community. We're not sure uh, but he was well qualified. Here's the point with all this. He was well qualified to speak on the relative gifts and responsibilities, both of marriage and singleness, uh, because he had experience with both in his own life, okay? What we want to note is that one is not more spiritual, it's not more spiritual or sub-spiritual than the other, Okay? He says, both being married and being single are equally gifts given by God. It just depends on God's plan and God's purpose for each of our lives. Uh, he says there are pros and there are cons, there are advantages and disadvantages on either side, okay? For Paul, he preferred singleness. He was gifted with the ability to remain single and not struggle with this unrelenting sexual you know, passion. And, and, and Jesus kind of touched on this when he said, there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and notice there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. You know, for some whom God has gifted in this capacity, being single is not a burden. You know, it's a blessing. 
because they're free to just serve God unencumbered and uh, undistracted, and it's their joy to do so. Having said that, Paul says, but, you know, God hasn't gifted everyone in this capacity, and it's not less spiritual to be married. One is gifted this way, another is gifted that way. Both are blessed of the Lord. You know, hey, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, obtains favor from the Lord. It's what the Bible says. Yet when we're uh, gifted of God to remain single, we can serve the Lord uh, unencumbered, undistracted, freely, and he just says that's a gift, it's a blessing from the Lord. You know, oftentimes people find themselves in the grass is greener trap. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Single people wishing they were married, uh, married people wishing they were single, and uh, each state is, is a gift from God. It's just learning to be content where God has called you. So if you're single, you know, there you are. You're wondering, well, is this what God's called me to? And uh, I would say this, if you're comfortable being single, if uh, sexual temptation is not overwhelming to you, hey, be blessed, be single. It's no, you know, serve God freely. But as Paul says here, if you burn with passion, better to marry. It doesn't mean you're more immature spiritually, you know, if you can't stay single. It just means God hasn't gifted you in that capacity, okay? Now, When Paul uses the phrase to burn with passion, this is not what we might call or consider normal temptation, okay? This would be something that is is beyond that. You know, feeling heat is one thing. Burning is something altogether different. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Everybody's tempted. At, At the same time, if you have a problem with lust, that's, again, we're, now we're crossing a different Threshold, okay? Don't deceive yourself. Listen to me. If you have a problem with lust, don't deceive yourself into thinking that getting married will somehow cause that to just magically disappear, okay? It won't. Now, that's something that needs to be taken to the Lord, something that needs to be repented of before the Lord. But he says here in verse 10, moving on, Uh, He says, now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, in that day, the wife didn't have authority or power to divorce, so he says, if she departs, and the husband isn't to divorce. You following me? Now, this would be a separate question that he's answering. So he moves on. So verses 1 through, uh, what, 9, he's talking about this situation. Should we abstain, even if we're married, and all of that? And then in verse 10, he moves on to this situation having to do with departing, divorcing, Okay. And the short is this, the resolution for marital problems among Christian couples is to be found in reconciliation, not divorce, okay? If, however, the wife or the husband feels for some reason they must depart, they must uh, separate, then they're to remain uh, unmarried there or to reconcile. They aren't to break up the marriage, 
in some misguided uh, search for higher spirituality, okay? Uh, And when he says that it's not him, but the Lord who commands it, what he's saying is that he's referring back to what Jesus taught, okay? Uh, There in Matthew chapter 19, uh, that apart from sexual immorality, God doesn't recognize divorce, listen, even if the state does, okay? That's why Paul says, either remain unmarried, meaning don't seek another spouse, okay? Either remain unmarried or reconcile. Uh, If you move on and you seek another spouse, you commit adultery as far as God is concerned. Again, Matthew chapter uh, 19 and verse 9. And if you remember right there in that context, when Jesus was talking about marriage and divorce and separating and adultery and all of that, uh, that's what prompted his disciples to say, man, it would be better than just to not even marry. Uh, and, and Jesus said, well, if you can receive it, if you're gifted of God in this capacity, he said, you're right. The marriage covenant, ladies and gentlemen, is a serious thing to God. And this is how we know, just by way of just quick, simple deduction of reasoning, that people are simply seeking to justify their own sin because we hear this thing, and, and it's this kind of thing, and it's not altogether uncommon, unfortunately, where they come and they say things like, well, you know, God just doesn't want me to be married to them anymore. Um, or, uh, you know, God has brought someone better to me, someone who will lead me spiritually. No, no, he didn't. You're not hearing from or speaking on behalf of God at all. Now, a Christian couple may separate. He, he acknowledges that here. They, 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 there may be a separation that takes place for reasons that don't justify divorce, you know, whether it's general unhappiness or a misguided sense of spirituality on behalf of one or the other. There may be conflict. There may be misery. There may be addiction. Maybe poverty. I mean, the, the list is probably quite long. And Paul recognizes, without at all encouraging, that one may depart. Not, not that he's giving them uh, a license to depart, but he's acknowledging that one might depart, right? He says, look, this just happens. People take the initiative and they leave. Um, but he says, you can't consider yourself divorced. You can't depart in such. In other words, you have no right to remarry, only to reconcile. Okay? Even in a separation, God expects his people to honor their marriage vows because they're still married. You know? And, and I might add that even in the case of sexual immorality, Jesus never commanded divorce. He simply conceded to the fact that if it's too painful for you to reconcile, in that kind of a scenario, God would honor that. But reconciliation is always his first desire. As we'll see later on in this letter that God has given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. This is God's heart. But many times in a marriage, we're prone to think that, you know, a change of circumstance would be the answer. Well, you know, what I've discovered is that the problems we face are rarely around us, and they're generally within us, okay? And at the heart of every problem, as you've heard it said, is the problem in the heart. 
the problem with new circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, is that we carry our own problems into them, okay? A Christian lawyer once said about the only people who profit from divorce are the attorneys. And, you know, that's true. There's a rending, there's a, a ripping, there's a tearing that takes place uh, in the divorce uh, or the disannulling of a marriage, or the, however you say annulling of a marriage. Now, uh, in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I want to address this real quick. Back in verse 12, when Paul says, uh, I, not the Lord, say. Uh, he's not saying, well, guys, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. Okay? Uh, this is just as much the inspired word of God as is any other portion of scripture. Let's remember the verses we just came out of. What he's saying is that Jesus didn't touch on this specifically as he did the topic previously that we just spoke on, okay? So pertaining to marriage and divorce, remember he said the Lord said this. I'm not saying this. The Lord said this. Now he's saying the Lord didn't say this. I'm saying this. So he's, he's going back and forth. Pertaining to the marriage and divorce between two believers, Paul simply reiterated the principle that Jesus taught. But pertaining to being married to an unbeliever, Jesus didn't teach on that specifically, okay? So his inspired apostle will speak on that. Are you following me? Simply put, salvation does not alter the marriage state. They're like, well, you know, here you are. You get, you get married as unbelievers. There you were in the world. You got married. Uh, one gets saved. The other doesn't. So what do you do? I mean, should I, now we're, you know, what should I, should I go? Should I depart? What, you know, Paul says, look, here's what you do. You stay married. That's the short of it. If they're willing to stay, then stay. Because you become a channel of God's blessing into their lives. Uh, as God blesses you, they benefit from that. Now, when he says that they're sanctified, he didn't say they're saved. You know, just being, because you're saved, that, that you can't like transfer or somehow, you know, your salvation doesn't apply to your spouse. But they're apart set apart, right? The word sanctified means set apart for the special working in their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of being just so close, being one with you, and you are a, a Christian. 
you know, you might think, go back in your Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. You remember when Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and Laban was like, well, if you serve me for seven years, then, then we'll, we'll do that. So he began to serve. But by the very nature of the fact that Jacob was in Laban's home, Laban was just being blessed and blessed and blessed. And so the, the blessing upon your life will benefit those who are within the circumference of your life there in your home, okay? Not to mention the benefit it brings to your children, right? The influence of the godly spouse is invaluable, irreplaceable, and so needed in the lives of the children. You provide a covering for them spiritually that otherwise would not be there. Now, one might wonder, well, is Paul saying that, you know, the children of unbelievers aren't saved? Well, you know, the the Bible doesn't really address that issue. Uh, what I do know, and anytime we come across something we don't know, what do we do? We go back to what we do know. And what we do know is that God is just, that God is loving, that God is good, that God will always do the right thing. But personally, I, you know, I'm never comfortable living where there's a question mark as it pertains to eternal issues. And so best mom, best dad, uh, just to give your life to Christ and be the covering for your children that they need. Now we're going to close here. I don't care if you want to make your way up. But if the uh, unbeliever departs, he says, let him or let her depart. And so what do we have here? Adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse Those are the two qualifications or justifications that we see uh, for moving on from a marriage bond. And he, he he says here, for how do you know whether you will save your spouse? Now, guys, this could actually mean two different things. Number one, when he says, if they're willing to stay, then stay. And if you jump down to that. He says, for how do you know that you, you know, well, you will save your spouse? In other words, he, he could be saying that you, one good reason to stay together is because you don't know, but that God might use you to be instrumental in saving them. How do you know? God might want to use you, you see. So stay with them. And, you know, and you could even go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 there, those first six verses where he talks about that situation where the wife and the gentle and quiet spirit and, and being the, uh, the, the witness to her unbelieving husband and all. And so he might be saying, stay together because God's put you in their life for a reason. He may want to use you to introduce them to him, you see. But the second thing that this could be saying, and they both... Are, are equal in their understanding is if they go, let them go because God doesn't need you to save them. Sometimes, you know, there's a, a sense of, of guilt when an unbeliever is abandoning the believing spouse and they're like, but how will they come to know the Lord? And it's like, they, they, the Lord doesn't need you to be instrumental in their salvation. So if they go, it's okay. Either way, here's what I would say. Exercise caution and seek God's heart. If you're married or one day will be married, right? That's all of you who are single. That's what this message is one day. Maybe if you will be married, right? So you're listening. God wants you to have a fruitful and flourishing marriage. Love God. Love one another. 
render the affection due, exercise communication and consideration, and you will be blessed indeed. Amen. All right. Let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word to us. And how simple and straightforward you keep it. It's what we need. We just need clear, simple instruction. And so I pray, God, that we would respond appropriately, that we would be doers of your word, that we would uh, honor you in our lives and in our marriages for the glory of your name. And, And Lord, I just want to pray, Lord, for every single person who is here, God, that you strengthen them in their ability to honor you in this capacity. And for every married couple, God, that, uh, that there would just be a, a mutual rendering of affection one to another. 